Hi, all. Welcome to another episode of Woe is Media. I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Annabelle, and today we're just going to go over a few things that happened this week. What a week it was. Um, so for the news side, I'm going to be doing another update about our boy Jay Powell, Fed Chairman. Oh, um, we. We, yeah, he, uh, he's got a lot going on. He, um, he also had a rough day yesterday, as did markets. So we're going to talk about that and kind of what's going on in the economy and what we can all expect going forward. And then for my second story, I know we've talked about we don't want to touch on COVID all the time because you know, obviously it's a big issue, been there, done that, because it's been going on for like a year at this point. However, yeah. there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what <gasps> I'm going to talk about today with the J&J vaccine. So we big breakthrough. That's super exciting. Alyssa, what have you got for us? Today, we are going to be talking about uh, an almost week old story now, the uh, 2021 Golden Globes and what a disappointment they were in various forms, as well as an upcoming program slate on Turner Classic Media. I will get more into it later. Sounds like a good set of stories for us. So I guess that's the issue with the reporting on the weekends. If anything happens over the weekend, then it's like a week old at that point. That's I know, right? <laughs> but I guess that's how award shows are. They're always on Sunday nights. So that's just how it goes. Which I'll get into. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess I'll get us started. So quick recap from last week we were talking about federal reserve chairman jerome powell and he was talking to congress about how don't worry i got your back i'm monitoring everything in the economy making sure nothing is going to tank um we will do what we can to continue supporting the economy i'm not going to talk about stimulus because i'm the fed chairman and that's not what i'm supposed to do but he got up and he talked again this week. I guess he's been enjoying the spotlight. So he went back out yesterday on Thursday and he basically was speaking again about how there's probably going to be a temporary pop in inflation, um, meaning a rise in prices because people are finally getting more comfortable going out and making more purchases, you know, getting, getting back to shopping a little bit back to, to normal. Like a lot of economies have reopened. So he said that he was kind of expecting a temporary inflation increase. And that's not exactly news. We talked about that last week. He said that, you know, that is very likely that it could happen, but he's not necessarily worried about a short-term inflation problem. He's worried about a long-term one, and that's not in the cards right now. So he will continue to monitor the situation and make sure it doesn't. Inflation, I guess, is like one of those taboo words among people in finance and the economists and all that. But inflation is coming only because of the economy's reopening, which is ultimately a good thing. Like it's stimulation. So it's kind of hard to have no inflation and a stimulated economy. Like the two, you know, they're, they're very correlated. A necessary so, evil, if you will. Yes, absolutely. And is it, it's not even really an evil because you would expect mm. things to, you know, as the world gets bigger and as, you know, it can be harder sometimes to make things or if quality goes up or something like that, you would expect to pay a little bit more for most goods and services. Not yes. that big of a deal. Wall Street doesn't see it that way. Um, they, they, had an, they had an absolute panic attack, totally lost their cookies yesterday. Um, that was not what they wanted to hear at all from the Fed. They were hoping that he was going to talk a little bit more about the rise in interest rates. So 
we talked last week about how the Fed chairman said he's not going to raise interest rates. And that's still the case. He's not going to move them. However, what we have seen recently, and I hope this does not put people to sleep because we're going to talk about bonds, which even in finance, people in finance find bonds kind of boring. But what's going on in the bond market is the, the yields or the interest rates on these bonds are going up and they're going up very quickly. And this is a sign that the economy is recovering. So you would think that would be a good thing and you would think that stocks would also act accordingly with that because it's like, oh, okay, the economy is doing well. I feel comfortable you know, making this investment in the stock market. So that's what you would expect to happen. But that's, that's not the case. Investors are freaked out by the rise in the bond yields because if you are able to get a good yield or a good return investing in bonds, which are historically a safer asset than equities or the stock market, then you're gonna do that. If you're, you're going to invest in a safer asset that has a good return. So they're dumping stocks and they're purchasing bonds instead because they're getting that same return, but they have less risk. Does that, does that make sense? Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> so, but that's what's going on. So there was a huge stock sell-off yesterday. It's been kind of down all week. The, the investors on Wall Street, they were kind of hoping that the Fed was going to maybe invoke something, something called Operation Twist. Ooh, like a Twizzler? Like, or like the Chubby Checker Twist? Yeah, that one. Okay, He's, cool. Jay Powell's going to get up there and, you know, <laughs> start shaking his stuff. Now, <laughs> so, <laughs> the Operation Twist is basically something that the Fed can do to kind of find that Goldilocks situation. So it would be where the Fed would be buying bonds that have longer terms and selling bonds that have shorter terms. It's like kind of a way to manage the rates in the economy. So that's something that investors were really hoping was going to happen because then it would cause, if they were buying the longer term ones, it would cause the yields to go down on those, which is ultimately what investors wanted. But he did not talk about an operation twist. He said he doesn't really, not super concerned about the rise in bond yields right now. So he's not super worried about it. Wall Street disagreed. So that's why there was a big kind of sell-off. He really didn't address any specific measures that he would use to push against the increase going on in the bond market. So I think people were just kind of kind of scared by that. They don't want rates to keep rising because if they do keep rising, obviously that leads to inflation. And if they rise on their own, then the Fed would probably raise the federal funds rate accordingly. And investors want that as low as possible because it makes borrowing cheaper. So that's kind of what's going on. We also got some other economic data this week. So new unemployment filings for this week were 745,000 versus the expected 750,000. So that's a little bit of a positive, came in under the expectation. Obviously that's a lot of people out of work. So that's sad and obviously our heart goes out to those people. We hope that you know things continue to move smoothly so you can get back to work if that's what you wanna do. But it is progress that we're kind of falling under those big negative expectations at this point. And we also know that we added about 379,000 jobs in February, which is also more than we were expected to add. So that's another good plus. People are, companies are getting a little bit more excited about things reopening and the vaccine and they're starting to rehire more. So 
those are all definitely positives. Know that the economy is far from ideal right now because there are still a lot of people out of work that we should not overlook. But it, it sounds like we're slowly getting on the up and up. And while Jay Powell didn't necessarily do his best at calming anybody down yesterday, I really don't think he said anything that should have caused people to panic. That's just kind of my take on the situation. Also, if you think about it, the average American is not necessarily that affected by bond yields. It's mostly just Wall Street. Yeah. So what this does slightly affect consumer lending. So we saw this week that the 30-year mortgage rate, like the the base rate, it rose to above 3% for the first time since COVID hit, which means that it's now getting a little bit more expensive to borrow than it has been in the past several months. And again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just means that kind of the refinancing boom where people were trying to get lower rates on their mortgages now that rates have dropped so much, it means that that could potentially be coming to an end because rates are starting to creep back up. And usually when things creep back up, it means that the economy is performing strongly. So I don't think there's personally any reason to panic. I think we're we're on the upswing for sure. Yeah, we just kind of need Jay Powell to uh, keep giving us updates as necessary. And hopefully companies will keep rehiring and we'll get out of this mess in one piece. I love how you keep calling him Jay Powell. Like y'all are like the best Judies. Like you get together <laughs> every week and just like talk finance. His name is Jerome Powell. And like, it's a great name, but it can be a lot to call him Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. So. You better call Jerome. Sorry, that was that was that was. <laughs> so, I, I, I kind of like Jay Powell because he has to. He's got to bring the pow. Ooh, okay. Yeah, bring that pow. Bring that punch. Um, Is it boom boom pow though? I think I think that's what he would probably bring. Because yeah, them folks better be jocking his style. I just hope he's not trying to be so 2000 and late with any sort of actions he needs to correct what's going on, you know? Oh, quick with the references today. All right. Sorry, that was a, Lisa and I are young millennials, so we enjoy that Black Eyed Peas era from the mid 2000s. Thank you for dealing with that. Sounds, Sounds like we have some positive things to think about, at least from the economic perspective. So my next story, I need a one dose. You know who can provide that one dose for you? Would it be Johnson and Johnson? It would be Johnson and Johnson. <gasps> right. So this is somewhat old news at this point as well, because last weekend, J&J received emergency authorization from the Food and Drug Administration for their single dose COVID-19 vaccine. That's exciting. It's not the same thing as full authorization, but none of the vaccines that are being administered at this point have full authorization. They're just emergency authorization because it's obviously a crazy time, a ton of people infected with this virus. So it received FDA approval, which is super exciting. This is the only vaccine that was ever in development to be one dose. Everything else was two doses because this is such a potent virus. So this is super exciting because operationally, that's going to be amazing. It can be very hard for people to, I don't know, if if you have to take off work to, you know, make your appointment to go get a vaccine, if you have to travel far to get to a healthcare provider, like whatever your situation is, having people do that twice can just logistically be kind of a nightmare. But this is really going to help the communities of people who 
are maybe somewhat underserved. They don't have as ready, ready access to healthcare. Maybe they don't even have a physician. Like if they get sick, they just go to like a pharmacy or they go to an urgent care or something like that. This will be great. You only have to go once. It is so before I guess I get into kind of like more of the details about the vaccine itself, I should note that the efficacy rate of this vaccine, it is 66% for overall effectiveness and 72% effective in the United States. The effectiveness rates were a little different across the different regions that it was tested in. Yes. So a lot of people, they're like, okay, well, the Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective and the Moderna one is 94% effective. Why in the world would I get one that is only 66% effective? That just doesn't make any sense. And I hear you. However, the purpose of these vaccines is to get as many people immune as possible. So even if the efficacy rate is a little bit lower, it honestly doesn't matter as long as more and more people are vaccinated because it will keep that spread lower. So you're protecting yourself and you're still protecting other people if you have that immunity. And for reference, nobody ever talks about the efficacy of a flu shot, but the efficacy of a flu shot is only 40 to 60%. Ooh, so this I didn't is, know that. Yeah, so, and everybody's like, get your flu shot. No one has any doubts about that one. So. It's really not a subservient vaccine compared to the Pfizer or the Moderna one, just because the effectiveness is a little bit lower. The side effects from this dose are supposed to be a lot less terrible. I've heard a couple of horror stories about side effects to the vaccine, but this one, the most common side effects are headaches, fatigue, and muscle pain. So you know what? If you're going to get your J&J vaccine, maybe take a Tylenol before you go in there, take a nap afterward. I had muscle pain this morning and I haven't had any vaccines yet. I know. I'm right? being safe though. I would like to point that out. <laughs> we are not eligible yet. We are not yeah. up and we are not healthcare workers. So we do not qualify yet, but rest assured when we're able. We will be out there. Yeah. I, um, I would cut off all my hair for a vaccine at this point. I would, oh, I, I wouldn't go that far. I value my hair very much. I yeah. would give things up for a vaccine. Yeah. Make, make some sacrifices for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so this is, this is great. It's also exciting because this is not something that you have to put in extremely cold temperatures and the shelf life is ridiculously long compared to the other two vaccines on the market right now. Those, you open the vial, you have to finish it all within six hours or you can't use it after that anymore. Mm -hmm. So that can kind of cause problems if people don't show up to their vaccine appointments and stuff like that. We see, we've heard some stories about people getting lucky, like maybe they weren't necessarily eligible for a vaccine, but they were in the right place at the right time and a dose couldn't go to waste. So they just ended up getting one, um, mm -hmm. which is obviously lucky for those people. But this vaccine, it can just be stored in a normal refrigerator, which all pharmacies and all doctor's offices thankfully have on site. So not much of an issue with storage there. And you can keep it there like not forever, but for a long time. So that is very exciting. Um, logistically, it's going to be just a lot easier. A lot of states have talked about opening if they haven't already mass vaccination sites. And I think the J&J &J vaccine, especially as more and more is produced, Right now, only 4 million doses have shipped out this week. A lot of states are going to do mass vaccination sites where they can do a lot of it quickly, and they'll probably open like stadiums and fairgrounds and just areas that hold a lot of people. They have the parking and all that, so that kind of takes 
that out of the equation and that'll be a good way to hopefully get a lot of people vaccinated really quickly. Um, I know in the state of Georgia, they have four max vax sites, mass vax (laughs) open right now uh, and they're opening five more. So that's definitely exciting. The state governments are finally getting on board and getting their act together about how to get people vaccinated. And then kind of more on the business side of this that I wanted to touch on. At the beginning of COVID, a lot of pharmaceutical companies set about trying to make a vaccine to produce immunity for, you know, patients and stuff like that. Pretty much all of them were all the major players that you've probably heard of, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Merck is another pharmaceutical company that was in the mix. Um, AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca, Novavax, those do not have approval in the U.S. yet. I believe they do in a couple of other countries, but not here yet. There are a lot of players in the market there, which is ultimately a good thing because people have options and because obviously this is a very time-pressing issue and can mean life or death for a lot of people, the more options there are to get people vaccinated, obviously the better. So Merck was one of those companies that was in the mix for creating a vaccine and they were not successful. They had very, very low efficacy rates with their trials and they just ultimately decided, no, this isn't worth the time and money anymore. We're so far off from where we want to be. We're just, we're going to close up shop on this project here. But President Biden helped to broker a agreement between Johnson Johnson and Merck. These companies are rivals, it should be pointed out. They're the Georgia and the Florida of the pharmaceutical world. They don't, that's a football reference, by the way, not a state reference. <laughs> but Alyssa and I are uh, Bulldogs, so... <laughs> Had to, had to give the tip here. So we're on the right side of the argument. Yeah, we're obviously J and J because we succeed. So that would be how that works. But anyway, <laughs> so Merck has agreed because, because they failed, obviously, with creating a vaccine. They still want to feel like they are contributing to getting people vaccinated and helping with the overall problem. So President Biden kind of got the leaders of the companies to talk to each other and Merck has agreed to use two of its manufacturing facilities to help produce this Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So they had no part in the creation of this, but they have agreed to use their facilities and use their employees to help pump this thing out. Hmm. And we have not seen something like this since World War II. So this is pretty exciting to have two major rival companies get together, collaborate, and start manufacturing something for the common good of the country. And for all countries, because this will obviously go abroad as well. That is exciting. Um, that's not really something we've seen. It's very easy, I think, to get to discouraged with a lot that goes on in corporate America. You know, money-hungry companies can be, and, and rightfully so. I, I definitely understand the frustration. But I do think this is a good positive moment to touch on. Having these companies kind of put aside their rivalry and their differences and work to kind of help the common people who are getting sick. And this vaccine has such a good track record of treating very severe cases of COVID. Everyone who received it, no one was hospitalized, no one died. So that's awesome. It really is kind of a matter of life and death at this point. So seeing Merck kind of step up to the plate here, even though they probably don't really get much out of it, apart from maybe some positive public relations, is definitely nice to see. Yeah, Alyssa, how do you feel about this J&J vaccine? I I am honestly very hopeful for this because like you said, like the efficacy rates, while some people are concerned about it, I personally am not, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in science. I want to say, obviously, I don't know everything that goes along behind the scenes of making, producing and distributing a vaccine, but I trust those that are 
involved in it. I do want to make a comparison, if you will. I feel that J&J and Merc are the Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice of the vaccine world. Hopefully will be met with better reviews than the actual film. Uh, <laughs> Did that one flop at the box office? It wasn't great. And that's coming from someone who saw it like within the first week it was out. And I remember I went with my roommate at the time and she loved it. And I was trash talking it the entire time. Gotcha. Yeah. Good comparison there. I like the, uh, the, are they DC or are they Marvel? Those are DC. Okay. <laughs> cool yeah it shows you what I know about superheroes but um yeah no I like the comparison there um a couple more facts I wanted to cover on this vaccine real quick so President Biden he invoked the Defense Production Act and that basically allows the Merck facilities to get the funding and the equipment that they need to produce this vaccine and it also allows the J&J manufacturing facilities to operate 24-7 so all day, all night, they gonna get this vaccine out. Yes. So that's super exciting that he was able to invoke the Defense Production Act. So he's got the legal grounds to do that on. And President Biden has announced that at this rate, with the invocation of the DPA, that there will be enough vaccines, at least on paper, for all American adults by the end of May. So that is two months faster than we were expecting. That does not necessarily mean every American will have a shot in their arm by that point, but it does mean that enough will have been produced for everybody who is eligible to get one, which is 18 and up. So that is exciting. That is exciting that the deadline has moved up. Maybe potentially we will have a somewhat normal summer. I think, I don't necessarily think we will be taking our masks off, um, but things will hopefully be open and maybe there will be some fewer restrictions on things like that. Hopefully people are just less scared in general, which we can all use some peace of mind right now, I think. Hopefully we'll only have to wear one mask instead of two. Instead of two. That's right. That's right. I was just going to say that's something to look forward to. Yeah, two masks or um, sweaty face. I don't really want to deal with that. (laughs) I don't have to for sure, but Other good news on this front is that the U.S. has increased vaccine administration from 1 million a day to 2 million a day. So that's also really, really awesome. Um, President Biden had originally set a goal of 100 million doses in his first 100 days in office. We are well on track to surpass that. They are at 54 million people so far have received at least one dose, um, and that does not include any Johnson & Johnson doses. That's just Pfizer and Moderna. So this is super promising. Um, We're glad that that's been speeding up. Um, And President Biden also has a really big focus on equity, especially with this new vaccine. He wants kind of those underserved communities to have the easiest possible time getting the COVID vaccine. Um, And that's awesome because a lot of the people who are in these underserved communities, they are unfortunately a lot more affected physically by the virus. We've seen that, especially the Black community, they have really physically struggled with COVID. They have been, they have higher hospitalization rates. Hopefully with this J&J vaccine, we can get this to people who are in dire need, maybe just don't have the same access to healthcare as some others. So all good news. Hopefully, um, I didn't bore anybody here, but there's finally looking to be a little bit of a light 
the COVID tunnel. I think we just got to stay patient a little bit longer, keep wearing our masks, keep staying at home when we can, protect others, protect yourself. Alyssa, what you got for us? Before I start, I want to apologize if anyone heard a um, cat meowing in the background of Annabelle's segments because my son is very impatient. He has now joined us in the room, but he will not be voicing his opinion on either of our stories because he doesn't deserve it right now because he's being a bad boy. He's also not eligible for the vaccine. He's he not is not. So. He is a very young boy. I wanted to just quickly go over my first story because I really want to focus uh, the majority of my time on the second story. And because once again, my first story is the 2021 Golden Globes, which happened last Sunday. And most of you have already heard about the annual Golden Globes were held virtually from two different coasts this year. One host was in New York City, and the other was in Los Angeles at the Beverly Hilton, where the Golden Globes are always held. And it was Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. They hosted together for the fourth time. The ratings for the ceremony were at an all-time low. Oh, really? Yes. Not the band, just the fact. All-time low, down 62% from just last year. Wow. Yes. As someone who enjoys both Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, I'm kind of surprised, but I guess the hosts are not the full reason behind the low ratings. Yes. And the majority of the show was virtual. Uh, They did have a few people in the audience in the Beverly Hilton Hotel, but the majority of, I, I think all of them actually were healthcare workers and first responders. They weren't like celebrities. Celebrities were in their hotel rooms or on Skype or Zoom. The show averaged about 6.9 million viewers compared to last year's 18.3, I believe. Somewhere in the 18. So about a third. Yes. And an overall 2.1 rating on the Nielsen rankings, which is abysmal. I've been like spouting this on my Twitter for the longest time. So I apologize if you already know my opinion on this, but I thought personally that this year would have been the perfect year to experiment with airing the show on a different night because the Golden Globes is one of the first big award ceremonies during award season in Hollywood. And it's kind of like the experimental one, like the funky dunky little sister that you know, dyes her hair blue and like gets every piercing in her face. Like she's different. So I was like, I just think it would be so beneficial to them. You know, they don't have much to lose at this point. It's a virtual ceremony. There's not much to like rearrange and reschedule. Why not throw it on a Saturday night? Because once again, most of us are still at home. We don't have many places to go out to. So -hmm. people would be in their houses and they'd be willing to maybe watch a little bit more. But you know what? I'm not a member of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which hosts the Golden Globes. Anyways, a few uh, highlights from the ceremony. Andra Day won the Best Actress in a Drama category. And she was a huge upset because many people expected like Frances McDormand to take home the prize for Nomadland. And this is just a personal opinion from what I've heard, Andra Day, she won for the movie, The United States versus Billie Holiday. I've heard she's the best part of that movie. So good on her. She is also the first black woman to win in that category in 35 years. Wow, good for her. Absolutely. She's really 
turned upside down was expected of the rest of award season. So we're really excited to see where that goes from there. Chloe Zhao won the Best Director Award for her film, Nomadland. She is the first Asian woman to ever win this category. And she is also only the second woman to win in this category in the entire wow. history of the Golden Globes. I had an idea of who the first woman was, but I was wrong. Annabelle, would you like to guess who was the first woman to win Best Director at the Golden Globes? Uh, I really only have one guess and I can't think of her last name. Oh, wait, yes, I can. Um, and I know this director only because of you when you were doing an assignment in one of your media classes on film. Um, I'm going to guess, and I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to guess Catherine Bigelow of The Hurt Locker. I would like to applaud you because uh, you're wrong, but I thought the same exact thing. I was like, surely Catherine Bigelow was the first person to win the Golden Globe for Best Director because she was the first woman to win the Best Picture at Mm -hmm. the Academy Awards. Yeah, that I remember. We were both wrong. It was Barbara Streisand. What did she direct? 1984's Yentl. Have you ever seen Yentl? I have not. Um, I know what you're talking about, though. Baba, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, that, that little ditty where Mandy Patinkin was looking like a snack back in the day. Sorry, I'll, I'll move on. <laughs> Anyways, a lot of people are attributing the low ratings at the Golden Globes to the LA Times investigation that came out just a few days before the actual ceremony about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, alleging internal practices and lack of diversity. And it has been proven that there are no Black members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Well, that doesn't seem right. Not at all. Not at all. So a lot of people, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people were applauding like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler for at the top of the show, they called the HFPA out. They were like, it's kind of weird that, you know, this is happening and not, not all this diversity is really being applauded in all facets. Mm -hmm. So some people were happy about that. Some people were still upset. I personally believe that the first two awards that were given out in the night were strategically placed there because they were as follows. The Best Supporting Actor in a Film category, which was taken home by Daniel Kaluuya for his role as Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah, as well as the Best Supporting Actor in a Miniseries or Limited Series, which was taken home by John Boyega in Small Acts. Now, these are both Black men So you can probably see why I think that they were strategically placed at the beginning of the ceremony. Yeah, I do indeed see that. Yes. They they wanted to cover that first and then move on. Exactly. And once again, John Boyega and Daniel Kaluuya were not the only people of color to win awards during the night, but it was, it it was very. Those are the big ones. Yes, exactly. So that's pretty much all I have to say about the Golden Globes. The next big one are the Grammys. They're next weekend. Get excited. We still haven't heard anything about who's performing at the show. Yeah, the heard- Grammys without performances. Exactly. And even if they're virtual, like we still want to see them. We've heard who's performing at the pre-shows. We just haven't heard who the main ceremony performers are. And I'm like, bruh, it's, it's a week out. What are these people doing? Make a decision, right? 
Trevor Noah, get on that. <laughs> okay, so my second story that I would like to focus more attention on this week, because I feel that it, it is relevant to not only my previous story, but another headline that was making news this week. So Turner Classic Movies, which is a very popular movie channel on many a cable, many a satellite, many a dish. It has announced a block of programming during the month of March titled Reframed Classic Films in the Rearview Mirror. Okay. And what this is, is every week in the month of March, TCM is going to show four movies each week and reframe, like you said, and commentate, commentate, is that a word? (laughs) Voice their opinions on why they feel that this film has become classic and why it has retroactively become very controversial. Or maybe it was controversial at the time it was debuting. I see. Okay, so an example of this, and I hope they don't air this, but an example of this would be like Disney's Song of the South. Yes, they aren't, but yes. Yes, okay, which should have probably been controversial at the time, but now Disney will not air it anywhere. It is in a vault. It is not viewable. (laughs) At all. For obvious reasons. Uh, Yes, there are going to be five hosts, like I mentioned, during the block of programming. All five of them work for Turner Classic Films, so they have a vast knowledge of film history as well as film theory. So I'm looking forward to that. And as they said on the Turner Classic Movies page, which is where I got the majority of this information, as well as an Entertainment Weekly article, they want to explore the history of these films by, quote, considering their cultural context and discussing how these movies can be reframed so that future generations will keep their legacy alive. Now for the interactive part of my segment, because it always comes along, I'm going to give the titles to you that will be shown during the month of March, and we can just briefly discuss why they are controversial. And because there's a decent amount of them, I will tell you. Okay. Hopefully I've seen these movies. (laughs) I I think you've definitely seen at least a few of them. I haven't seen all of them. I will admit that. Oh, by the way, all these films were released between the 20s and 60s. I don't know if they're going to continue on 60s forward, but for right now, we're just stopping at the 60s. The first movie is 1927's The Jazz Singer. Uh, Well, I have not seen that one, but I can only imagine with that title, The Jazz Community, and 1927, I would imagine there's probably a lot of very negative racial language in there. You've probably seen a picture of this film because The Jazz Singer is actually one of the most notorious examples of Hollywood's use of blackface. Oh, I see. Yes. The actor, I believe his name was Al Jolson. He is a white man and he dons very offensive makeup and performs in like a minstrel-like show. Do you know what a minstrel show is? I don't. So a minstrel show was a thing that happened. I don't know everything about it. I took a brief class of popular music history when I was in college, but a minstrel show is something that has been used in time to um, perpetuate stereotypes of not only uh, black musicians, but also just like black civilians and I'm sure other races as well. And it's just, it's overall very upsetting. So that one images and yikes yeah I see why this is controversial um that is very very heavy blackface yes 
Swing Time from 1936. Oh, Alyssa, I feel bad. I actually haven't seen like, any of these. <laughs> We're only on number two. You're fine. So this one is, uh, it also deals with the problem of blackface, but this one is a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie. Okay. Which a lot of people were like, oh my God, Fred Astaire participated in blackface? Yes, he did. Next one. I know you've seen this one because we're both from the lovely state of Georgia. 1939's Gone with the Wind. wind. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, this this is obviously about the state of Georgia during the Civil War. And, you know, you kind of see the the slaves working on the plantations and kind of the way they're characterizing them um and it's very much kind of a uh, I guess I don't know if glorification or glamorization is the right word but it's sort of like romanticizing kind of the old south I feel like um which is obviously not good because that was when slavery was legal so there's nothing really to romanticize because there was so much inequality absolutely I think you put it into very great words actually you you pretty you. much took it off my page. Gone with the Wind is obviously very notorious for its portrayal of Black characters and Black stereotypes, like the mammy. Yes. That whole idea was pretty much created by Gone with the Wind. And like you said, it has a very idyllic view of slavery. Like everybody gets along. There's nothing to be upset about. And it's like, yes, there is. Okay. 1939's The Four Feathers. Not familiar with this one either. I was not either. So I had to look it up. And honestly, I had to do quite a bit of digging to find out what exactly was controversial about this film. Mm -hmm. But apparently at the time of its release, not even like a few years later, at the time of its release, this film was criticized for celebrating colonialism, British imperialism, and being racist. Because the basic gist of it is it's about like these gentlemen that go to the Middle East And as you can imagine, their skin is painted to be a little bit darker and it just like glorifies like, oh my gosh, Britain is so great. We should have never been mean to them kind of thing. Next one, 1939's Gunga Dean. Gunga Din. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I'm not. I got nothing for this one. I'm really not doing well with this. I promise promise you we're going to get to ones that you're going to be like, oh, that. This one's basically, once again, racist depictions of Indians just being seen as like primitive and not being like cultured enough to like hold a discussion with the white man and it was actually banned in Bengal and Bombay as well as Japan when the movie first came out because of how terribly it portrayed Asians. Fun little fact Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is actually in this film and you may not know him but you may know his father Douglas Fairbanks Sr. He was a founding member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists and also hosted the first Academy Awards. Yo-G. Douglas Fairbanks is a pretty big deal. Not saying he's perfect because he ain't. Oh and DFJ his son the guy that's in this film he was at one point married to Joan Crawford. All right then. Yeah. All right. 1939, 1939 was a very big year in controversial films. Stagecoach. Stagecoach just makes me think of Wells Fargo. <laughs> and their logo. And it's that a is film a- about the start of a very powerful bank. No. Um, Stagecoach <laughs> is pretty much like the 
I don't want to say the OG Western because there were definitely ones before this film, but Stagecoach is one of the most notorious, one of the best known Westerns. And it has very racist depictions of Native Americans. Native Americans, yep. Indigenous people. I will say though, I'm not trying to go to bat for Stagecoach at all, but I have seen clips of it. I haven't seen it all the way through. It is beautiful. Like the the Technicolor, as well as the shots, the framing of it, it's it's gorgeous. Did they film it in the American West? I believe so. I believe some of it was shot on site. Yes. (laughs) Um, 1942's Woman of the Year. I'm guessing it's very sexist. You would be right. So Woman of the Year actually won the Best Original Screenplay at the 15th Academy Awards. And the reason it was so controversial is because the final scene in the film was changed to depict star Katherine Hepburn as being incompetent because one of the men that worked on the film was such a well-known chauvinist that he believed that her character, quote, needed her comeuppance. Wow. Like he was scared that like housewives were going to go to this, to see this film and be like, oh, she's so perfect in every which way. My husband's going to leave me for someone like her. So he was like, we can't have that. We have to keep the American dream alive. No divorce. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, God forbid a woman leave her uh, terrible marriage. Right? Exactly. 1944's Dragon Seed. That sounds like there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment in it. You would be correct. Catherine Hepburn is back. And the majority of this film is about Chinese peasants, so to speak, during the Japanese occupation of China. But the majority of the actors were in fact white. White. So you can imagine why it was bad. Okay. So in the old days of Hollywood, were white actors the only people employed? And that's like why blackface and, you know, just this use of face paint to create other races artificially. Is that why it was so common? For the most part, there are very well-known actors of color during the golden age of Hollywood, such as Hattie McDaniel, who played Mammy in Gone with the Wind, Butterfly McQueen. Anna Mae Wong was the first Asian American film star to like gain recognition and actually, you know, like portray someone of her race in a film, but they were few and far between at this time because the way that old Hollywood worked is actors worked for the production company. Like you could be working for Paramount, but I could be working for MGM and they could only do with who they had. I see. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that's why like the motion pictures, arts and sciences, the screen actors guild, that's why all of those were created because Golden Age of Hollywood was actually very like oppressive. Dark. Like, yeah, it's it's <laughs> very so interesting to read about. 1947, Sinbad the Sailor. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, Sinbad. I, I'm blanking on the location of this film, but I would all get good. It's all good. I can tell you in just one short sentence, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is back and he's in brown face again. Okay. Yep. All right. This is honestly my favorite one that we get to talk about 1948's rope 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 like a piece of rope that's an intense title um does it have to do with hanging people sort of please enlighten me i don't i'm not familiar with this film oh my gosh so exciting let me tell you you're showing me this one this is an alfred hitchcock film okay and 
It is his first film that was made in Technicolor. Jimmy Stewart is also in this film. Okay. Do you know who Jimmy Stewart is? Okay, good, good, good. This film is very well known once again for its Technicolor, as well as its long takes. Like the way it was filmed was almost made to seem like it was filmed in real time. And it was one continuous shot, which was like groundbreaking for the time. It is also based off of the true crime Leopold and Loeb case. Okay. Which, if you know anything about the Leopold and Loeb case, you may realize why this film was controversial. Because Leopold and Loeb were two male companions that were also lovers that decided to commit the perfect crime and kill a young boy. So this film was criticized for having heavy homosexual subtext at the time of its release. Which in uh, the 1940s, probably not okay to be gay. Would be not great. Yeah, you know, not not very not not very popular. Even though just because queer people are not being shown on screen does not mean that they don't exist in real life. In right. fact, the two actors that were playing the Leopold and Loeb characters were actually queer in real life. Was it known that they were queer, or was it sort of an accident on casting's part? So John Zoll was gay. And he was kind of like hush hush about it. But Farley Granger, who was also well known for Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, which is a fantastic film if no one's seen it, and he's a snack. He was bisexual and apparently he was very open about it in his lifetime. Okay, good for him. Yeah. So I'll be proud. If that's what you want to do, why not? I also just wanted to quickly include this uh, quote from an IndieWire article called Hazed, Decoding the Classics that I found. And it was basically explaining the Leopold and Loeb case and how like the guy kind of manipulated the other guy into doing this crime with him because he was like, "I, I will be with you romantically and sexually. And the quote is, been there, done that, bought the titty tank, girlfriend. (laughs) What a quote. (laughs) So just wanted to include that. And that article is really cool. I have to include a link somewhere. Okay. 1954's Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Five Academy Award nominations, but it is based on the short story, The Sobbin' Woman, which itself was based off of an ancient Roman legend of the rape of the Sabine woman. And I didn't know this when I was reading this this morning because I grew up with a VHS of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers in my movie case back home, but I never watched it. The film involves the kidnapping of women in order to like make them their wives. Oh, that's awful. Exactly, you know, but of course in the film, it's all happy and joy and fantastic and everyone lives happily ever after. I should guess that based on the title. That makes me think of that terrible scene in Pirates of the Caribbean ride where they're like, they're having the bride auction. Oh yeah, of course. In that village and then they're for sale. Trying to get them, you know, to be sold in the bride auction. We love that. Okay, 1956's The Searchers. That's hard to guess from the title. This is a John Wayne film. Um, His character is overtly racist, much like him in real life. I will not fight about it. John Wayne is not my favorite person in this world. And if you think he is a stand-up individual, you should go read again. 
We do not like John Wayne, duly noted. We do not like John Wayne. Go read his Playboy interview from the 80s. It's terrible. It also portrayed an indigenous people as stereotypes and underdeveloped in time, as you can imagine, being Western. Mm-hmm. 1959's Tarzan the Ape Man. This also kind of sounds like colonialism to me. It was kind of the um, the European explorers coming over into the jungle and taming yeah. the savages. So that's yeah. what I thought they were doing. That could that could totally be it. Honestly, this film was very hard to find exactly why it was controversial. The biggest thing I could find was uh, the film directly stole the plot points, footage, and sound from a film that was previously made in 1950 called King Solomon's Mines. So it plagiarized it? Basically, that's what it kind of sounded like from all the research I could do. Well, that's not okay. That's and definitely controversial. And apparently it's a very well-known like camp classic because it's like so terribly made. Mm-hmm. And apparently people just like watch it and laugh at it. Okay, we're almost done. I promise. 1960s, Psycho. Getting stabbed in the shower. You know, casual night. Casual night. I don't, I have to say, I don't know why this one off the top of my head would be controversial. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. Um, <gasps> but it's very scary and it makes you not want to take a shower after you watch it. So I am a big psycho fan. I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times. It was very controversial at the time of its release because, as reporters put it, it made mainstream seemed like they were accepting the ideas of violence deviant behavior as well as sexuality because this film is very violent for 1960 Mm -hmm. and the sexuality part like you actually see like janet lee she she's obviously not like nude on camera but you can like she's alluded to be nude like in a shower scene Mm -hmm. and so a lot of people were like gasp at that exactly scandalized how dare this woman show her shoulders on camera exactly yes also fun fact psycho is one of the first films to ever show a flushing toilet on camera that's a fun little tidbit and a lot of people like use that as a controversy too because they were like oh that's disgusting we all we all use the restroom yeah all right we're in the home stretch. 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Ah, yes. This was um, Audrey Hepburn mm-hmm. eating her bagel outside. Mm-hmm. Is that Tiff- why it's controversial? I mean, bagels in New York, I can't imagine that would be controversial. So what's, what's the controversy with this one? Have you ever seen this film? Again, only bits and pieces. Really? Oh, okay. So Breakfast at Tiffany's is actually very well known for its use of yellow face because American legend icon superstar Mickey Rooney actually plays a Japanese character and it is absolutely vile (laughs) to say the very least. Like he, his... His skin is painted a darker color. His, his eyes are pulled back by tape. He has false teeth in. It is wretched. Oh my goodness. False mm-hmm. teeth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh God. It's oh. so bad. Like it, it, like even just looking at pictures of it, it makes me want to barf. Like how did anyone think that was acceptable and okay? Like, oh, oh my God. 1961's The Children's Hour. 
be honest, I never heard of this film before today, but yeah, felt like a dummy for a second there. (laughs) No, you're fine. It garnered five Academy Award nominations and it, (laughs) its controversy was in the film, Audrey Hepburn is back and she and Shirley MacLaine are suggested to be having a lesbian relationship. What a lesbian relationship. (laughs) I know, right? Even just like the poster, like I looked it up and I was like, oh, I definitely see how some heteros could be upset by this. Like she's touching her shoulder. Oh, yes. That's quite intimate for her 1964's My Fair Lady. Audrey Hepburn is sticking with us for right now. Yes. My Fair Lady is the story of this woman, this man tries to educate her Mm -hmm. and teach teaches her how to be civilized right yes and you know he has this like language lesson with her about how to how to speak and I remember she goes to this this ball right Mm -hmm. and where is she from that he thinks he needs he needs to educate her she's a flower seller like she sells her wares on the streets and she has a very like cockney accent maybe you blow my arse that's a very famous <laughs> film moment in the film i couldn't exactly find the exact reason like why it was so to speak controversial but i went along with like the classism angle of it as well plus my everybody favorite- rich and hoity-toity Yes, of course. And like the elitism of that. Also, My Fair Lady was a musical before it became a film. And the role of Eliza Doolittle was made famous by Dame Julie Andrews. Yes. And they, there was this whole debate when the movie was being made, whether or not Julie Andrews should be in the film. And ultimately, obviously, it went to Audrey Hepburn. But... It is famously well known that Audrey Hepburn did not sing a single line in that film. All of her songs are dubbed by a Miss Marnie Nixon. All right then. So even though even though they made Audrey Hepburn take voice lessons, they all ultimately just dubbed her over. She can't sing, I guess. The voice lessons didn't work. She sounds fine. Like you can find recordings of her singing the songs. It's just not as powerful. It's very similar to like. I, I hate to make fun of Emma Watson because I love her, but like Emma Watson and Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. I She's love a great her. actress. You know. I love her. She's a great not actress. A bad, she is not a singer. Not her strongest suit, but. She doesn't have the range. Doesn't matter. She can act. Have you ever seen that video? She doesn't have the range. <laughs> I love her to pieces, but she doesn't have the range. <laughs> That's me with Emma Watson or and Audrey Hepburn. Okay, last movie. Sorry that took so long. 1967's Guess who's coming to dinner? Oh, yes. Interracial relationships. Yes. This is one of my mother's favorite movies, actually. So oh, my I, gosh. Yes. We're going to have to have a movie night with her. We are. Get it from her perspective. Yes, this movie famously portrays an interracial couple and its dynamics with their two separate families. And I did not realize this, but the case that made interracial marriages legal across the United States, I believe is the right term, loving versus versus Virginia. Virginia. It was only decided six months prior to the release of this film, Mm -hmm. which is just amazing to me. Like, wow. That is why Virginia's state slogan is Virginia is for lovers. 
which honestly that kind of makes me mad because like y'all were so mean to them and then now you're just capitalizing off their romanticizing it yeah exactly yeah it wasn't like they came to virginia to get married like they went to another state to get married and then came back and virginia was like we don't recognize this if i'm remembering history correctly yeah no that is how it went down that's one of the few supreme court cases i like actively have in my in my little uh, file cabinet of supreme court cases that i reference <laughs> of course also a great film that came out a few years ago loving has ruth nega as Mildred Loving, and it is, oh, it's so good. But that is the end of my list. And I just thought it was very interesting to talk about this week, considering, you know, like the Dr. Seuss controversy and people deciding like what is and what is not appropriate versus like when it comes out versus how it ages and how it may not age gracefully, so to speak. So I just wanted to go about that from a different angle because obviously everybody has been talking about Dr. Seuss this week and Mm -hmm. I just wanted to come up with, so I just wanted to talk about that because I do feel that, you know, everybody always wants to talk about, you know, like this film is controversial and it shouldn't be viewed anymore. And I totally understand that for some cases such as Song of the South, but for some of these, you know, like I feel like we need to use it as a teaching moment. Obviously never repeat some of the things that have happened in these films and use it as a lesson of what not to do, but also just like reflect on your own history and take it into account when you realize what exactly like you're fighting for in your own personal life, I guess. It just, I I love using film to reflect on my own life. I do that a lot. I've often told Annabelle that I live my life as if I'm in a movie. Yeah, I like what you said about using it as a teaching moment. I think that is important because I think a lot of people who, you know, maybe they recognize the offensiveness of some things in history, but they don't necessarily want to erase the past. And obviously you can't erase the past, but there is something to be said for a lot of, you know, these movies, especially like we were talking about with Gone with the Wind, they can kind of like romanticize that era. Yes. We want to make sure that we're not romanticizing or like an era where people were seriously struggling or Mm -hmm. were you know discriminated against in that capacity or god forbid enslaved there's nothing to romanticize there Um, absolutely not we need to understand history and we need to learn from it and we need to acknowledge what people in the past have gone through and what you know people today may currently still be struggling with in any ways that they might be discriminated against and yeah the more we know the more we can work to make positive change for everybody absolutely so if i see any of y'all in hollywood making a movie about romanticizing slavery or yellow face or any of the other things that do not fly anymore we're gonna come after you yes we will not be <laughs> letting watching. that be known we'll start a petition so we will. here's your warning <laughs> I mean, she can start a petition. I'll be at the front gates of Paramount, like, let me in, like. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, that was a good, good mix of stories this week. Thank you for sharing your movie list. I think that was fun. Um, So thank you all for joining us this week in Woes Media. We will be back next week with more stories. Hopefully it's a slow weekend, so we don't have any older news to report on with you guys. But thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Yay!